Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Just for the halibut! Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fishing, Fishing Guide, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend, happy to be here. And today we're recording a live show at North Country Angler in North Conway, New Hampshire, one of only two fly shops left in the entire state of New Hampshire. And uh, I've got Steve, Steve Angers, right? Steve Angers, yep. Ang- yep. Oh, Angers, I'm like angry Steve. I'm like, God, angriest fisherman ever. Well, I'm thinking about adding an L to my name and then I'll just be Steve Angler and it'll all work together. You should have done that a long time ago before you bought, the, bought it. But anyway, we're gonna t- today on the show, we're going to talk about some great flies you can use for springtime fly fishing, which is my hardest sport is fly fishing. I'm terrible at it. I'm starting to like it more this year than ever, um, even though I haven't caught any fish yet. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, the concept of stocking stocking fish over wild or native fishes. How do we feel about stocking, let's say, brook trout from the fish farm on top of native or wild brook trout? We're going to talk about those impacts and uh, see, where else, see where this goes. So how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I like the uh, topics this week, and the uh, ice is finally out here in the North Country, so we have people looking to find their favorite fly and go catch some fish. Yeah, and so why don't we, why don't we just open with that? Before we get into like the, the controversial conversation about stocking fish, why don't we just talk about the best flies for springtime? This is New Hampshire specific, but, you know, look, brook trout, Trout or trout, they're not that smart. They don't know where they are. So these flies will probably work anywhere. So your number one fly that you would go to, you go to, I'm going to fish today. It's cloudy out. The water's high because of spring runoff. What's your first fly you grab? Well, the first fly I grab is a trout par fly. (laughs) And why is that? Because trout are the biggest cannibals in the fish world. They think nothing about eating their young of the year. And, uh... All of the brook trout spawned last fall. All of the brown trout spawned last fall. And there are plenty of brook trout and brown trout par in our waters. And if you want to catch a big brook trout and a big brown trout, then you fish little brook trout flies and big brook trout flies. We should call it baby, baby bait. You know, that would be really funny. Now, I work with um, one of the local schools here. They do a program called Trout in the Classroom. And they're releasing their trout on Thursday this week. And, and I... In my brain, like the kids are like, oh, they're going to grow up and be these big trout. But the reality is they're just feeding the trout. Exactly. I do not have them put those trout in the Saco River because the brown trout will have them for dinner tomorrow night. Right. <laughs> we, we call that chum, right? <laughs> they're yeah, just exactly. chumming with babies. <laughs> All right. And what is it? Can you just, so it looks like a baby par of brook trout. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, way back in the 1950s, a uh, guy by the name of Samuel Slaymaker That's a great name, by the way. Right, especially if you're slaying trout. Um, Came up with the idea that these large trout were eating the small trout. And in the 50s, bucktail, you know, dyed deer tail, was the uh, tying uh, material of um, favorite. And so um, he came up with a combination and... uh, We'll uh, we'll have make sure we got a picture of this for uh, Clay to put up on the on the website. But um, he came up with a little brook trout, a little rainbow trout, and a little brown trout, and then just started catching big fish. Um, 
as was the, we didn't have podcasts in the 50s. You went to Field and Stream and Outdoor Life, and you wrote a story and sent in the pictures of the big fish that you caught. And these flies became one of the go-to flies for fly fishermen 50, 60 years ago. All right, I'm going to have to try. Those are they're like streamers, aren't they? They're not like flies that sit on top of the water. So if these are, people don't fly fish a streamer, you drag it through the water. It looks like a little fish kind of scooting through as you strip your line in. Speaking of fly fishing, I'm doing it, Steve. Yeah, yeah good. And then and it looks like, and it looks like it's darting around. And sometimes they'll they'll grab it when it's moving, and sometimes they'll grab it like in between poles, like when it stops for a second and just scoop it right up. Right. And if you're fishing a pond or a lake this time of year, the shallower water where the spawning took place warms up the fastest, and so the biggest fish are in those shallow waters looking for this you know this forage fish, and um, the fishing can be pretty. Uh, Pretty rapid and pretty exciting this time of year when you do that. Yeah. And and so the, the fly I first ever tried to fly fish for trout with and never ever caught one was called the Mickey Finn. And it looks like what you have on the table here in front of me. Is that similar fly? Well, it's similar because it is a bucktail. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Mickey Finn is tied with dyed deer tail. And um, that was one of the early bucktail streamers. That was more like in the 19, early 1900s when that fly was developed. And kind of an interesting story, the reason that that fly is called the Mickey Finn is back in the day, people would slip Mickeys in drinks <laughs> to, um, what should I say, persuade them to be more, uh, more outgoing. Mm. And uh, this fly was so successful catching trout that, uh, that the guys at, uh, at the club decided to call it the Mickey Finn. Ah, clever. So it's like the roofies of, of the trout world. It's like, the, it's like, it's awful. Like it's an awful reference when you think about it. It's like the date rape exactly. lure. Yeah, it's terrible. Exactly. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm boycotting Mickey Finns now. I'm sorry for anybody who has had a Mickey Finn. Well, it's, it's true. The Mickey was the roofie of the early 1900s, but uh, it's funny how everybody is racing to create the newest, greatest, best fly on the planet, and yet... The fly from the 1900s still catches as many fish as anything else. Well, you know, we see the same thing in the spin casting world. You know, all these new lures coming out every year, but they're all great. They all work. But see, people still go back to the little Cleos and the spinners and all the same the bush tails when they were kids. They still all, there's a reason it's classic. It's because it works. All right, which number two fly? Uh, well, the number two fly is the modern version. And uh, now instead of using dyed deer tail, we use all kinds of synthetic materials, so nylon furs and plastic uh, tinsels, and uh, these flies are called the Senyo trout par flies, and they're able to give us a lot more flash. So I think they're more of an attractor pattern than they are an imitation of the actual par like the Slaymaker bucktails were. Mm-hmm. And they're super pretty. I mean, these like would make nice earrings, you know. They, Absolutely. <laughs> they're really great looking things. And and so these you fish the exact same way. Throw it out, strip your line in, and catch yep. a fish. And they don't and they don't sink very fast. Nope, nope. They stay right under the surface, just like a small trout par would. You know, the small trout want to be in the warmer water eating plankton, and um, you don't need them to sink very far. You do need to strip them pretty fast. That's fantastic. And and so. And, and do, do people ever, like, fish these in tandem? Like, if this is an attractant, could you put a line behind it with your other little streamer behind it? Or was oh, that, sure. was that yeah. just dumb? Yeah, absolutely. Nope, nope. You can, uh, 
a lot of guys, because of the smaller bugs that are hatching at the same time this time of year, will put like a small midge pattern or a small little spider wet fly off the back of their streamer. Um, salmon, if they're not focused on forage fish, will love to pick up the little tiny little tiny midges. Um, if you fish the Merry Meeting River, mm-hmm. you know anybody here that's from New Hampshire knows the Merry Meeting River in the spring. Um, if they're not taking streamers, put on that little black spider or that little black midge, and you will start catching salmon in the Merry Meeting River. Oh, that's perfect. And so just yeah, and I always find with any kind of fishing, if you're not catching fish, smallify your tackle. Go smaller because the fish will eat, but they don't always eat big giant things. And huge fish eat the tiny. You'd be shocked how small a bait a giant fish will eat. Oh, especially rainbow trout. I mean, the one thing I'm looking forward to going out on Silver Lake here, as soon as you get your boat in the water, <laughs> we will uh, we'll go out with some midge flies mm. and, uh, and start throwing midge flies around, and we will catch some nice rainbow trout for sure. Well, last year, we were about this time of year around the lake, and you can see trout in the middle of the lake in, in 160 feet of water, but at the surface, sipping uh, little flies off the surface and we threw Rich Collins was out with us and we were fly fishing throwing everything we had at them and they could care less about our flies so it'd be interesting to see if you can do what Rich couldn't do and close a deal on a fish there well I don't know Rich is Rich, Rich is our fly fishing expert here in the <laughs> valley so uh, I don't know I got my work cut out for me <laughs> I know. and if all else fails we'll just drag a uh, gray ghost is it gray ghost behind yes. the boat yep. and see if we can pick a, up a, a salmon that way or something well, trolling is another great way to fish this time of year, too, and um, the fish haven't gone too deep yet, so you can throw a tandem gray ghost or a red gray ghost or a Winnipesaukee smelt, mm-hmm. uh, drag it behind your boat, um, you know, your power boat like you have. Uh, I like to get out in a bay with a canoe and just canoe around in a, in a couple of circles, figure eights, and, uh, and pick up fish that way, so... Um, definitely time to be trolling uh, flies right now. Yeah, is it still fly fishing if you're trolling and using the boat power, not like casting at all? <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because a lot of people that I sell trolling flies to are putting them on spin rigs with downriggers. So they like fishing with the flies because it's a good imitation of the bait that the fish are after. But it technically is it fly fishing. Not so much. <laughs> no, because, I mean, but the, so the, the state defines fly fishing as a combination of, of the line, the rod type, and the reel, right? In the artificial fly or lure that they're using, Correct. right? So it has to, it's a combination thing. It's not just one piece of the puzzle. So, um, you know, if, if you think that you're a fly fishing purist and you still want to troll, what you can do is put lead core line on your fly reel, and a lead core line gives you, get, allows you to get the fly to the depth that you want. And then, of course, once you hook up to a fish, you're playing it on a fly rod. So, you know, fishermen are weird. They play all kinds of games on what it is that they're trying to uh, accomplish out on the water. And it's all good, you know. It's about catching fish. Yeah, as long as they're coming in and buying the stuff from you, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Any other uh, flies you want to talk about? Uh, not really. I just thought it was interesting to let everybody know about the par. Most people have kind of missed it and they're throwing, uh, you know, flashy flies or attractor flies. But if you really want to focus on trout in the spring, throw trout par flies. Right. And then the next, the next thing you would go in about a week or two from now is you're looking at 
the, the sucker spawn starts to happen. And then you want to go to egg patterns and fish behind the spawning fish, right? Exactly. I mean, it's so crazy, especially rainbow trout seem to love to pick up uh, sucker eggs. And you will go and you will see a carpet of suckers spawning. And five or ten feet down below them, you'll see rainbow trout that are just sucking up every single egg that's broken loose from the sucker reds. So um, it's, a, it's a proven method. A lot of guys like to do it. As a fly fishing purist, it's bait fishing to me, but whatever. Again, as long as you got a fish on the line, everybody's happy. Now you're saying it's bait fishing to you. It doesn't mean you wouldn't do it. If, if the fish were not eating anything else, I know you, Steve. You're going to put on a, an egg pattern and catch a fish. Yeah, with, with a sinker about six inches above the egg fly. <laughs> I know that. Uh, Rich Collins was doing that in the Merry Meeting, I think, two weeks ago, and he was catching suckers on that pattern. So it works for other species as well, including their own. Right. Well, I... You know, fish are opportunists, and if there's food there that's available, they're going to get it. Sucker eggs happens to be one of them. You know, the trout pie that we were talking about early is another one. Um, in the bigger lakes, the smelt now are going to start running up the, up the feeder streams, and the salmon and the lake trout are going to be chasing the smelt. So as long as you can stay on top of the different cycles, mm-hmm. um, you can uh, throw big flies and catch big fish. Yeah. Now, no one talks about yellow perch spawn, which happens immediately after ice out. They drape their eggs over the weeds like Christmas lights, uh, and they're like six-foot ribbons of eggs. And they, those are the first hatching fish of the season. And no one talks about using patterns from yellow perch. Have you talked about this anymore? Have you think about this at all? Oh, yeah, sure. One of the really um, great... Uh, in fly patterns for this time of year is the barn special and it's a perch imitation so um, and lake trout you know there's a very small window of time that we can catch lake trout near the surface and if you know that there are lake trout around you can cast the barn special and uh, and get lake trout on a fly rod it's pretty cool I would, I would love to do that so but we are, i'll be out next week on the boat as much as possible with ice out just having happened We'll be trolling, we'll be fly fishing, I'll be spin casting, I'll put worms on hooks, I don't care. I'll put worm on a fly line, I don't care, I'm going to catch a fish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe I'll have you leave with a couple barn specials today, we can see what'll happen. (laughs) I'll put a worm on them too, I don't care, (laughs) can't make something happen. All right, so let's let's move on to our next topic, because, because I've been, in the last like two weeks, bombarded with people asking me questions about stocking fish. Now, I'm a... I'm a, what's the, what, what do you call it? We don't care about stuff. I don't care about it. Like, it's not an issue that's like near and dear to my heart, but there are fly fishers and regular fishers who this is like their political hot ticket button. We've had conflicts right here in your own fly shop because of it. Uh, and so the concept is, is people are upset. Some people are upset that we've got some wild fish in New Hampshire. We don't call them natives anymore because we've had so many years of stocking that, that, all our wild fish are bred with stocked fish, so they do, or native is not commonly used anymore. But um, they're wild reproducing fish. And meanwhile, we're taking fish from hatcheries who are like cows. They're not, they're not bred for their like survivability. They're bred for catchability. And so they're dumping those on top of the fish that have learned to survive. Uh, what's the conflict? What's the problem with that? Because I want to catch fish, so I don't care. <laughs> Well, I think what the, uh, the conflict is, and I do want to say that I apologize to Doc Martin about anything that's about to come out from me because <laughs> I'm not a paid scientist. Um, 
but we, uh, we don't pay Doc very well. <laughs> <laughs> I know she's uh, she's she's my fave to listen to on the podcast. So um, I'm looking forward to get off my show. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she'll uh, she'll probably she'll probably kick me off the show after this. But um, there's all kinds of studies being done now about the conflict between stockfish and wildfish, and um, There's been a most recent study done in the Appalachian Mountains down south, I think it was either Virginia or Georgia, that actually showed that wild fish, because they're smarter and and hatched in the wild, actually outcompete stockfish, Mm -hmm. and that um, stocking fish over wild fish, um, well, it has a temporary hit on the biomass because the stockfish do want to eat, and they will eat the bugs that the wild fish eat. But they can't outcompete the wildfish, and so stockfish don't actually last very long in the water. Right. And the ones that do have it, we, those are good genes. We, we don't mind having those good genes. And use the word smarter. That's very anthropomorphic. That's for Doc. I'm going to say it for Doc. <laughs> and uh, what you mean by that is they're better adapted. Because they've, because they've reproduced in those waters, the genes that make it best able for them to survive is that they can hide better, they can eat better, they can get caught by fishing better as much. That's not smarts, that's better adapted. That's natural selection at its best. And the ones that you get from the hatchery are not selected for survivability. They're just, we have 10,000 fish, let's put them in the water. Right, and, and you know the guys that are paying their money for their license can go down and catch them and take them home and eat them or put them in the freezer and freezer burn them or whatever it is that they like to do. I do have to tell you, though, um, here's my scientist coming out. Uh, 15 years ago, we paid for a study to be done on uh, the effects of hatchery genetics on wildfish. And one of the streams that was used as a test model had been stocked heavily for 20, 30 years. However, it had for five years not been stocked. And within five years, all of the hatchery genes were bred out of the wild fish. So that selecting process happened real fast. Really fast. It happens really fast. And so while there's a lot of, um, like you said, a lot of controversy about stocking over wild fish, um, the data happens to, two pieces of data that I'm sharing with you today. One shows that the wild fish outcompete the hatchery fish, and the other is that if you stop stocking hatchery fish within a short period of time, the the stronger, better wild genetics take over, you know, for the trout that remain in the stream. Okay, so we know that's kind of the conflict, and there are people who, what are they, ignoring the science because of some anecdotal stuff they're seeing, or is it they have studies that don't they, they've read other studies that don't match what you're saying like what's the conflict because the data shows what you're saying these people who the other people who are who are really upset about it they're also very smart people where why don't they see what you see well i think i think the conflict is that you know once again with the study that we did that we paid for about the genetics once the wild fish are out of the system and they do eat biomass. They do have an effect on the overall, um, the overall biology of the stream. That if you don't stock over wild fish, the wild fish now can 
eat, get all of the bugs, all of the food that's available in the stream. They'll reproduce better. Their numbers will be stronger. And you get more wild fish than you would if you're stocking farm fish over wild fish. All right. So why are people so i don't get it like, well, well, <laughs> I'm, yeah, well i'm missing a point like well, now, like now, why are we so upset <laughs> well now now i'm gonna take off my my bio my biologist hat yeah. sorry sorry doc martin and i'm gonna put on my shop owner cap yeah, let's do it okay um people buy a license they come to the mount washington valley they want to catch fish right the habitat that we have isn't conducive to a lot of wild trout and so you have to stock fish to make sure that the customer base is happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's not be foolish. Buying licenses is a business, sure. and you have to give the customer what they want. The real issue is there are places where you don't need to put stocked fish over wild fish. What you should be doing is putting more stocked fish in the places that need stocked fish. And so I think that's kind of the controversy is what is the allocation of stocked farm fish? Where are we putting them? What are we doing with them? And to me, that's more the controversy. Now, the other thing I see as a shop owner is everybody says, oh, millennials don't go outside. Millennials don't like, don't like the outdoors. Millennials sit on their phone all day. I find nothing further from the truth. Oh, I haven't seen any evidence supporting that either. But, you know, every generation beats up on the youngest adults. That's how, that's human nature. That's American brain space. We, as a Gen Xer, I remember people telling me, all you do is, like, they, they call me Nintendo no friendo. Like, oh, right. all these Gen Xers do is hang out and play video games. It hasn't changed. And millennials are no different. Right. But what I, what I see with the millennials are, they want to do something that not everybody else can do. And because there aren't a lot of wild fish around, millennials want to pursue wild fish. So not a weekend goes by that I don't send a bunch of millennials with one of our North Country Angler fishing maps up into the White Mountains where the wild brook trout are, and they're very happy to catch four- and five-inch wild brook trout. They're thrilled with it. And when they get back to work on Monday... They take out their phone and they're showing all those friends, look at all these wild trout I caught. Yep. And everyone's amazed. Yeah. And they love it and, and they're very good at Instagram. In fact, when I get when when you I've had two two calls from millennials this winter for ice fishing trips and I was giving them a choice of where to fish. And their question was was not where is the fishing better? It is what is a better photo shot for Instagram? Like where am I gonna get my best Instagram shots? <laughs> Right, right. So, you know, that's, that's, and I actually think that's great because we're going to need the younger generation to carry the wild trout, wild trout or the wild fishery banner. Um, The stocking model's unsustainable. The cost keeps going up and up and up to feed these fish, to transport these fish. It's just unsustainable. And so we need to come up with a plan that makes um, our fisheries good for the people that want to catch wild fish and the people that want to catch stockfish. And I think w- personally, one of the biggest problems I see today is that nobody wants to reach a compromise. Everybody's mired in their position. It's all wild fish or nothing. It's all stockfish or nothing. And no one's going to win if that ends up being the battle. 
Well, people are going to win is people have the most money, which is going to be the stocked fish model because that's where the money comes from. The the native fish model doesn't bring in the money because the licensing fees and the the tax fees from from buying your fishing equipment all goes to stocking and producing more fish. And so I think I think you're right. And so 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 the answer is going to be you protect certain waters. Like from stocking, you say, okay, this section of this river we're not going to stock, or how do you keep? How do you like? What's that look like? Well, the 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 funny thing about this whole thing is that if you look in other states that have recognized wild trout and are going to protect wild trout habitats, they actually charge an additional fee. If you want to fish for wild brook trout in Connecticut, you don't only you not only pay the license fee you pay an extra $10 to go catch a fish that's untouched by human hands. Right. Well, that's how they used, in New Hampshire, that's how they used to support the Atlantic salmon fishery in the Merrimack River. It was a $10 salmon fee. You'd, and that money went, all that money went directly into the anadromous fish program. So it's not a crazy model. And with us having so much national forest, that, you know, it's, it's not crazy to say, hey, we, we're not stocking in the national forest or we're not stocking, you know, yeah. Well, that's kind of that. That's kind of been my personal crusade since I've bought the shop, and and probably will be until I'm no longer the shop owner. Um, the White Mountains of New Hampshire have been called by the Forest Service the last bastion for wild brook trout in the Northeast. Uh, all the water above 2,500 feet stays cool enough to keep the fish year round, and. Um, there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't just turn the White Mountain National Forest into a wild brook trout fishery, charge a $10 fee, stop stocking, you know, the Peabody River, the Swift River, the Pemajewasset River, just stop stocking them. And, uh, and it would be a boon not only to fisheries, but just even tourism. You know, it's a big, huge, it, it's a big opportunity for the state in tourism as well as, you know, in, in license fees. And if you want to find a, a, a wild brook trout in New Hampshire, it's not that hard. What I do is I drive up in the mountains and you have the big rivers like the Swift River, which is a pretty good sized river. That's, a, that's full of stocked fish. But all these tiny tributaries, when I say tiny, I mean like three feet across, a foot and a half deep in a deep hole, they're full of wild brook trout. All, find a little hole that's just a foot and a half deep. You don't even need a fly rod. You can use a tin cara if you want to, which is how I would do it, and drop that little fly in there, and it just packed with little brook trout three, four inches long, and you can catch 20, 30 in a, you know, a couple hours' time. Absolutely, and, and you know that's, that's what the new consumer, the new fishing consumer wants. And um, you know we continue to work with Fish and Game um, on these issues, and uh, you know we're getting some reception and we're getting some traction from them, so that's you know really positive. Um, but like everything in society, um, you know it takes time. You know we're not going to be able to just flip a switch and make the White Mountain National Forest brook trout, wild brook trout heaven. It's just not going to happen. There's too many people that use those waters. There's too many different constituents, and. Um, we just want to reach a good compromise. We're, we're not mi mired in a position. We want a compromise that's going to make everybody happy and uh, protect our wild brook trout. Perfect, perfect. Now let's get let's talk guiding. Okay. Okay. So your your fly shop, you're 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 angling your fly shop to be like a one stop shop for people who need to hire guides. You have a, now used to have just you know a couple of guides working out of the shop. Now you've got like a handful 
of guides. So now you can help people. If you come to New Hampshire for vacation, one of the things Steve and I have been talking about is we want the Mount Washington Valley to be like a destination for fishers. We want people to come here and catch fish. Obviously, I make money at it. You make money at it. Tell me about your guide program here. Um, it's interesting, but what, we try, what we've tried to do is, uh, is partner with guides like yourself that have a specialty. Um, rather than have, uh, you know, just a generic fishing guide, we have, you know, you're our lake guide. If we have people that want to troll for salmon, troll for lake trout, um, in the summertime, cast for, for bass, you know, clay groves, fish nerds guide service, they're the person that you want. We ha- recently have two guides, um, um, Mason Thagoras and... Uh, I went to guide school with Mason, by the way. Oh, you did? Okay, all right. Well, Mason Thagoras of White Mountain Anglers and uh, Randy Ouellette of the Swift River Gilly, uh, they've both just gotten their permits to guide for these wild brook trout in the National Forest. It was a very um, a very difficult process for them to go through. You know, 25-page applications to fill out, insurance for insurance to get, et cetera, et cetera. But they did the work, and now when the millennials or whoever come in and want to go fish for wild brook trout, we're going to be able to hook them up with Mason or Randy. Um, our regular floating guide service uh, with rafts in the Swift River now when it's high or the Androscoggin River during the summer. Um, Mason, Randy, Will Schmidt of Castafly Outdoors. Um, they all have rafts. They're all licensed by the state to guide on rafts. So we can take any type of fishing fantasy you have and fulfill it. Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't gotten that Lake Whitefish yet, huh? <laughs> no, I haven't got That's my one. It's just never going to happen. It's just dead end for me. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about all the time we have, but uh, tell us how people can find you. Give us your Instagram, your Facebook, all the things. Okay. Um, Our Facebook is North Country Angler Fly Shop. Uh, We do a weekly fishing report starting on Memorial Day. So if you want to know what's going on here in the Valley, check that out. We um, there's time limitations on Instagram. We're Angler North Country on Instagram, but we do put a shorter version up on that. Um, We also have our our regular website, northcountryangler.com. You can get all the supplies, um, all the fly fishing supplies that you need. Um, And then, of course, if you come by the shop, we have the famous North Country Angler fishing map. Brand new. (laughs) We got 2019 version just came in, and uh, that is free to everybody that comes into the shop. We want you to come to the valley. We want you to catch fish. We want you to have a good time doing it. Perfect. And of course, you'll find links up at fishnerds.com. And Steve is very active in the Fish Nerds podcast group on Facebook. So if you're posting in there, if you're a member of that group, you've probably already talked to Steve and don't even know it. Yeah, I, I, uh, the Fish Nerds is the one place that I don't miss when I'm on the internet every week. And uh, I thank Clay a lot for letting me be part of the, this week's podcast. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And um, we'll see everybody soon. All right. Hey, Fish Nerds, thanks. Uh, really fun talking with uh, North Country Angler. Love hanging out in that little shop. And it's one of only two fly shops left in New Hampshire. So make sure you support your local fly shop or any local fishing store you can. You know, Walmart and all these places are fine for getting tackled if that's the only choice, which it often is. But if it's not, 
those independent shops, that's where you get the real deal information. So it's really, really important. I'm Lawrence Gunther, and this is another Bluefish Canada Stewardship Tip. There aren't too many types of fish that can actually adjust their swim bladder if you catch them down deep in the water column. When you catch them down 30, 35, 40 feet and you bring them up to the surface, it doesn't matter how slowly you reel them up. Fish at depths where you know the fish can survive. For most fish, that's 25 feet, not much deeper. Lake trout, salmon, you can go a little deeper. Walleye, pike and bass, they can't. So fish shallow don't fish too deep and give those fish a chance for all the latest canadian fish and fishing news follow bluefish radio to support them all right next up i got a text from my friend john king the crappie hippie the other day and he wanted to know more about fiddleheads so i thought i'd let my kids talk about fiddleheads we go foraging together uh, once a year there here are my kids our chief kid correspondent, Zoe and Sammy, talking fiddleheads. And this is really for John King, who I happened to mail some fiddleheads to so he could cook up. Here you go. Hi, my name is Sammy, and I'm nine years old. A fiddlehead is a baby ostrich fern. You can find fiddlehead during springtime in New Hampshire for two weeks. A fiddlehead is different than, than other ferns because it has, like, brown paper wrapping on it. Others have, like, black or fuzz. You can eat whatever fern you want, but but you might get cancer if you choose the wrong one. So make sure when you're picking fiddleheads, you only pick the fiddleheads, the ones with the brown paper wrapping. Um, you can tell if you can pick a fiddlehead because it is because it is um smaller um like it's still folded up and it doesn't have any leaves yeah and it looks like, like a fiddlehead you can pick a fiddlehead by um pinching your fingers together on the fiddlehead and then snapping breaking the fiddlehead off um i think the best place to find a fiddlehead is in like swampy areas floodplains because it gets um it gets um fertilized by all the fish poop when it floods. Bye. So if you want to cook your fiddleheads, which I highly recommend, you should before you even start wash them real good. Always cook your fiddleheads because otherwise they'll be bitter and you can get sick from them. So some ways to cook them are to blanch them and freeze them when you're done with that. But my, my favorite way to cook a fiddlehead is to saute them in butter with garlic and salt and pepper. Then you can eat them once they're cooked. Last night I went to a restaurant and they had fiddleheads. They were deep fried fiddleheads with a curry aioli sauce. Unfortunately, they ran out. So we made some monies at um, when we were selling the fiddleheads at, on West Side Road. So I was keeping track in a little notebook. And the first day, we made $80. And the second day, we made... $76. And we still have to stand at the bottom of the driveway if you live in, in Mount Washington Valley and want fiddleheads still. My name is Oat. I'm 12. Fish nerds out. Fish nerds out.
out. Fish nerds out. Bye. And if you don't know John King, uh, the crappy hippie, we love this guy. He's a super fan, and he called the show a few years ago like a thousand times, and I said to him, why don't you be correspondent for the show? You got so much to say. Come on and be part of this fun. And, and he did, and he's, he's been a really great asset to the show, a lot of fun, really excited, uh, and he's starting to do some editorializing, editorializing for the show now. So he's going to have a, an editorial. This is his opinion. Uh, we may or may not agree with it, but it is John King, the crappy hippie's opinion. If you like him, you can support him by going to glasswaterleadfreelures.com and buying his fishing lures. He is an anti-lead fisher person, which we all should kind of be working in that direction. Uh, great guy, great lures, a lot of fun. Here is the crappy hippie with his editorial. Hey everybody, this is Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas. Hey, I thought this last show was damn interesting. First of all, we have Doc Martin with some real big news. When I asked Clay what was up with Doc here lately, he told me her family had been blessed with a chubby bundle of fun. So naturally, I thought she'd adopted Rich Collins. But no, it turns out she has a beautiful little girl and has embarked on the greatest journey a person can make in their life. So congrats to Doc and her old man Scott for embarking on the road to parenthood. As for John Balcom, I found his point of view to be well thought out and salient as hell. I'm not going to quibble about what a fish really knows, because in their wisdom all agreed that it is pretty much impossible to know what any critter really knows, including our fellow human beings. One of the few blessings of aging is that I realize I don't really know jack shit about anything, and it sort of comes as a relief. What I got out of the conversation, the takeaway as all the kids say, is that what we need to do is just show some respect. It's not about moralizing on the actual pastime of fishing, but how one conducts themselves while doing it. For example, a good hunter practices shooting, whether it be with a bow or firearm so they can make that kill quick and clean, one shot and down. And if they screw up and wound that deer, then comes a long search so they can find it and finish it off. When we can't find it, it's a heartbreak. But sometimes the crows and coyotes win the game and the deer and hunter loses. Sometimes it goes the other way. And truth be told, generally the deer comes out on top. That's why there's a damn many of them. The point is, when it comes to taking the life of another being, it's all about what's in one's heart and soul. When I look at fishing, it's in the same light. I mean, fish have a tough time, just like everything else. And humans are just another being out after them, the same as turtles, snakes, birds, and mammals. It's a hell of a deal being born good to eat. The thing is, free will is best expressed in terms of giving a damn. Do you give thanks to all that is made and its maker? Do you acknowledge that you're just a small piece of the overall whole? Or are you a killer, a relentless taker, a seeker of prideful, self-serving, imagined glory? I don't care if a bass tournament fisher uses a jerk bait loaded with trebles instead of a jig because he wants to win. Because most of them, the good ones, it ain't about that in the long run, but yardsticking one's knowledge and skill against another while enjoying the outdoors. In the same breath, I found Jeff Danielson's testament revealing and refreshing, a true expression of the conflict a thinking, feeling person has to deal with when it comes to what a person knows. He's come upon a set of standards that allows him to interact with his quarry with feeling, humility, and regard for that which he is after. But I'm not here to say one is better than the other. 
When it comes to feelings, if anyone thinks all us outdoor types are about is a mental jerk-off, they need to reconsider. I once saw a buddy break down and flat-out cry over a big buck he had taken with a shot that put that deer down ten yards from where it was hit. It was an aged animal with broke-off points from fighting, a champion who'd made many a fawn in his life. But the haunch Tony gave me a few days later was delicious, and I asked for grace and given thanks before the meal. I've seen a fisher release an old warrior of a catfish and sit there and stare into the water as the gravity of it all settled in their mind. It's not just a bunch of giggles and grins being a predator with an advanced brain, because the heart is connected to all things in the world if one can just let it lie open to the experience. At least that's what I feel about the true sports, the good ones, those of us who show respect for the gifts we are given. Thus, I'm really glad that Dr. Balcom didn't pass heavy judgment on our outdoor pastime. I suspect this is so because his brother is a fisher, and so he's led to some degree of empathy for the what's and wherefores of this pursuit. He may be uncomfortable with what we do, but he did not put it in a better or worse context, but one of self-awareness and consideration for that which is larger than one's transient, superficial, and external needs. And of course, Doc hangs out with us, even though she don't much care for fishing, and the only reason I can figure is she knows we all feel a lot of what she feels when it comes to loving our fishies but that some of us take a more visceral approach than study and observation. Yeah, we cause pain with recreational catch and release. Yeah, we get blood on our hands, whether we harvest or not. But is that any less justified than fish guy Josh sticking a stream darter in a jar of formaldehyde for the purpose of advancing science? I, for one, would have to say no. As I walk to a fishing hole, I often think of the indigenous people who occupied this land before me. They had no use for linear thinking, the better than thou, the more or less, above and below sort of positioning of living things which ends up being construed as morality. They hunted and fished and stuck the same arrows in the humans on which they took on in warfare. Things were not this or that. Things just were. To them, there was no power in a line or a square, only in a circle. The same death they dealt was going to come round to them upon a time, and that was not a matter of right and wrong, better or worse, but simply the way things are. So go on and think what you like about Dr. Balcom and his ideas. We know a person who throws a carp on the bank or slams a drum on the side of the boat because it's not a bass is one sick fuck with the darkness of fear and prideful denial the enactment of which is ugly. In contrast, a person who asks us to consider what we are doing on a deeper level is not a threat nor a prophet, but simply offering a different mountaintop to see from. Hubris is the first of the seven deadlies for a reason because it's a form of willful blindness. One can get to the center of the world, but only by letting it in, not by conquest, not by cleaving a path of wanton destruction, and certainly not by trying to appease a superficial need for power in the brief twinkling of a lifespan. It's only through the courage of consideration and by stretching one's mind to heretofore unknown places that we can grow. So stay sweet, stay beautiful, my fellow nerds. We're all right. Join regret. Happiness and sorrow, life and death, they all go hand in hand. It's all in how one faces what is. Thanks for listening to the ramblings of a semi-washed old rocker. Go get them. Love who you are and what you're doing. Catch a few fish along the way. There ain't no shame in that. This is Crappie Hippie saying tight lines and valentines. Peace out. All right, thanks, Crappy Hippie. Next week, we'll be back with him again. He actually did a, a long-form interview for us with someone named, well, I'm not going to tell you that, the Pond Lady is how I know her. So that's how you'll know him, too.
If you want to support this show, and you should, go to patreon.com slash fishnerds, and we're looking to get about $4 a month per person. If you're already giving to the show through Patreon, and we owe you uh, some rewards, send me an email, let me know. I've, I've completely messed up the Patreon and lost track of who's who. I do have rewards in stock. I do want to mail them out to you, but I just can't remember uh, who's who I've already mailed them to. So I need your support there. Also, if you're giving to us uh, on a episode-by-episode basis, we're moving the Patreon to become a, a weekly, a monthly Patreon. So if, you're, if your plan was to give us $4 a month, and you put down $1 an episode starting in June, I'm going to ask you if you could do it, go back onto Patreon and try to adjust your payment from $1 uh, an episode to $4 per month. Uh, and that'll be the lowest tier. For those who don't know what Patreon is, it's crowdfunding for art projects. And basically, you, you give an ongoing donation to an artist so they can afford to keep their stuff going. We don't have any advertising here on the podcast. We welcome them. I just don't make any effort selling them, <laughs> selling ads. I'd much rather make the show for the listeners, and that list, and the listeners can pay us through Patreon. So it's really easy. It's cheap, cheap money to keep the show going. It makes a big, big difference. We'll make decals and swag and fun stuff. Uh, and occasionally, I'll reach out to you through there for special events and things. So patreon.com slash fishnerds. And I think that's the whole show here, folks. So thank you so much for listening. Until next time, follow the code of the first. <laughs> follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early, spawn often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached, and swim against the current every chance you get. Thank you, everybody. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds. Fish Nerds, Fish Nerds, it's a podcast, just for the halibut, fried in a basket or broiled in a pan, eat it raw like you're in Siam, Fish Nerds, Fish Nerds, Fish Nerds, it's a podcast.